Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. So, I've often wondered, when I was a kid and first watching like these old Universal horror films, at what point the world went from black and white to color? <laughs> did, you, <laughs> did you ever wonder about that? No, I can't say I did. <laughs> I was a little kid. I'm like, wow, everything was in black and white back then. I wonder when it switched to color. <laughs> what a boring palette you have. <laughs> I did. I was like, man, maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe I see everything in colors. I think, <laughs> I think what's hilarious is like they just decided one day, like, you know what? Color would be really bitching. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's maybe turn the dials up a little we've, bit. We've tried the sepia tone. We've tried black and white. Let's do a little color. You were just living in like the DC universe color palette. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. This is Jeremy. And with me, as always, is Trevor. I'm here. And I didn't say Curtis, though. He's not here. He's not. He He's uh, moved on to greener pastures. Sometimes he's also, he's doing some other stuff for us, but he's, his pastures, that's where the, that's where like all the dogs are shitting and stuff and the cows. And, in the green pastures? Yeah. It's making everything green. I thought it was the rain that did that. Well, it was the combination Am of the I rain Am I treating my lawn wrong? A little bit of shit, a little bit of rain, and you got green. That, this is not what we intended I to talk like about today. you're feeding me a lot of shit right now. That's a ton of shit. Um, but what we're not going to feed you shit with today is... <laughs> is what a segue. <laughs> what a transition. Is Frankenstein. We are talking not the not the novel. We are going to do a deep dive at some point about the novel. We, we are don't, still We don't in, read on this podcast. We don't read on this particular episode. We are just talking about, because we are still in the summer of Universal Horror Monsters, so we are talking today about Frankenstein, 1931's Frankenstein with uh, Boris Karloff, with um, Clive, what was his name? I, did you write these names down? Because I sure didn't. Oh, fuck, I forgot to write the dude's name down. He's like <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> That's maybe a deep, we've got so much detail in these movies, we, have so we many, don't have got, any cast members other than I, Boris Karloff. Yeah, Boris Karloff, that's all you need to know. Um, he was only 5'11". I do have that written down. That's, he looks so much taller. Uh, well, that's like the maybe, boots. That's like maybe an, an inch taller than, than I am. Yeah. So that's not so that, that means tall. I'm taller than Frankenstein? Yeah. I'd be like, bitch. So today we're going to talk a little bit about 1931's Frankenstein uh, starring Boris Karloff, um, uh, Colin Clive. I, I did recall the name. Um, and... Uh, Hey, there's some guests outside the show. I feel like I'm on Good Morning America, waving to the people. It's, very, it's interesting, for sure. People just keep walking by. We're in the sweaty box. We're in the sweaty box again, but they tell us there's a fan and there's actually light this time, so we're not having to, like, squint. Yeah, and they've made upgrades. <laughs> upgrades. Uh, we can still call it the sweaty box, though. Um, <laughs> it's also got uh, the guy, that, Edward Van Sloan, who was, mo- I think, more famous for being Van Helsing in he was Van- 31's Dracula. That's right, Van Helsing. And then here he he, he plays a, a new character entirely. Dr. Waldman. <coughs> I said that with and a German. And forgive me, I don't, I don't believe, I don't remember him in the book. He's not in the book. I, he, I really only remember like three characters from the book. And it, it there was is Frankenstein, a doctor. there was uh, the monster, mm-hmm. and then um, Frankenstein's 
uh, wife. Uh, wasn't it Elizabeth? I think it was Elizabeth. Yeah. He does have a mentor, a doctor and the a mentor in the book, but I don't think um, it's not is not named it's Dr. Not, Valdman. But it's also not a very big role. No, it right? isn't. I, I mean, really, the, the court cast, I as I recall, it was really yeah. just like three characters. Yeah. And yeah. I and, and for those of you who are like Frankenstein stands out there who are like, how dare you? Uh, you got to understand, like, I there are holes, there are gaps mm-hmm. in my knowledge. I read the book, mm-hmm. but I think I read the book maybe 25 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And so... We will uh, read it again before we do the deep dive. Yes. <laughs> but but I, I feel like it's not quite as necessary to know the novel right. to watch this 1931 film. And, and that's one of the reasons why I find this film so interesting. Well, and they because, say, too, the film was more based on the plays. The plays were coming out like a year or two after the novel was released. Which would make sense. And so the sure. film is more based on the plays than they are actually And on this a, is pretty common, I think, at least with this early... Uh, early stage of of kind of horror production, right? It's just a a bunch of adaptations that they're kind of doing. They're not necessarily digging into original ground yet. And I I put the strong emphasis on yet because there are some movies in this universal horror canon which are entirely original and not necessarily um, grounded in any you know, adaptation of something else. Right. Um, it's it's just this particular film uh, is is a very loose adaptation, I think, of the novel, yeah. and, and really is just kind of doing its own thing with its own message, which I think is very transformative to how we think about Frankenstein. Oh, sure, but it makes totally sense too, since the first person, what was her name, Peggy Webling, was the first person to adopt or adapt the film into like a screenplay and she was Which part of a sense. theater company. Um, so she had already been part of a performance of this on the stage. And so the, the way they knew it and the way they understood it was, and the way they saw, I feel like film at the time, because it was so new was an extension of theater. I mean, it's, it's, they were still doing a lot of shots that right. were like based on like the silent film yep. kind of, that's right. Kind of era. I mean, this is kind of a new era for film uh, placing this in 1931. Right. Right. We're, we're talking about, only a couple of years distant from silent films. Right. And in fact, in, in Dracula, which I wasn't here for that Dracula episode. Quite Sorry sadly. about that. It's, you know, just personal things. But um, in, in the Dracula film, right, you can actually see like where they are starting to use these new technologies and new techniques in filmmaking. And it, it yeah. just kind of unravels in front of you as you're you're watching the movie, you know, you're and they seem to still be using new... some of the old silent film stuff too. Oh, like, of like course, like the close up on his eyes when he's just staring. That's great for a silent film, but you want yeah, more absolutely. With the you you need yeah. more exactly. You need more interaction. <laughs> um, but there are also some like just technological um, innovations done in Dracula that that also you know just kind of change the game a little bit. Yeah. The moving camera is a huge deal. Um, and you, you'll also notice in a lot of sequences where they're, you know, kind of like moving around or maybe the camera's moving or something like that. It's almost entirely silent. And that's because, you know, in a talkie or something like that, you don't necessarily have the ability to edit out certain parts of a soundtrack. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, sound being made. So 
um, if your actors are moving around, you know, you're going to pick up all of that sound. So sometimes it's easier to just mute the entire experience <laughs> for your camera movements and stuff. So you're not picking up all of the sound of like the camera rattling around as people are trying to talk. But I feel like even with the, the few months difference between Dracula and then Frankenstein a few months later in the year, they'd even improved upon that. Because oh, Frankenstein yeah. is much more of a... a physical it's much more of a it is uh, an entirely different kind of presence than dracula although they use the exact same like castle from like in it's castle dracula and the and and even some of the same actors right oh yeah, yeah yeah i think it's fascinating because dracula proved i think proved more than anything else that horror could be something extremely palatable to the mountain the masses oh yeah right like it proved that there is an audience for horror. And moreover, I think it kind of established this tradition that you can have prestige horror productions and still make a shit ton of money. Yeah. Because Dracula was immensely, immensely profitable. And so was Frankenstein. Frankenstein was a sensational movie. So I want to talk really quickly about a couple of sources that we use to get this. First of all, Trevor and I sat down and we watched Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, the 1931 version. Then I've got the book Universal Studios Monsters, A Legacy of Horror, which was written by Michael Mallory with a forward by Jason Bloom. Right. Um, so that kind of impacted us. We also sat down and watched some documentaries. We watched. We did. Yep. Uh, we, wa- we started to watch the, the his- not the historical, but the film historian narration of right. Frankenstein. And we thought that that didn't really speak to what we were trying to say in this episode. Yeah. Correct. Um, I dig- it's interesting. Don't it is get me interesting. Wrong. And if you're if you're into film history, uh, go for it. Oh yeah. Um, but but we kind of think more thematically. You know, we think yeah. about like what what does this inspire in us for us? What does this inspire or should this inspire for you? Like, why should you return to this movie that is ninety years old <laughs> at this point? Ninety what? Yeah. Ninety one years old. But I did listen to, so I did, and this is where some of my kind of feedback and commentary are going to come in as we have this discussion. I did listen to, I got the option to, or opportunity to listen to um, Sir Christopher Frayling, who did the historical narration for the film. And he is a, he was knighted in 2001. He is a, um, uh, he is an educator. He's a writer. He is very famous for studying pop culture. He provided the historical narrations on not just Frankenstein, but on several other of the universal horror films mm-hmm. um, that we'll probably cover coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a very well-respected, uh, you know, expert in this kind of field and and in this discussion. And uh, so that was that was one source that I feel like um, we can quote from. Uh, I know we're not going to get into the the not, or the the creation like effects or whatever of the the film itself too much. Um, I think we do need to remind people that this is taking place like these movies came out at the beginning of the Great Depression, like the Great Depression yep. is only a couple of years right. old now. Um, we do need to remind people that uh, while Germany was not fully Nazified, <laughs> Nazi Party was a power in Germany. Right. Mm-hmm. And we were only a couple of years prior to Hitler uh, taking um uh, being elected to chancellor, I think it was. Wasn't he chancellor? Or was he the? He was elected to one role, and then mm-hmm. he like ousted the other leader. Yeah, it was, I believe I believe it was, it was chancellor. chancellor. Um, but he had already produced Mein Kampf, uh, his famous book, and so I think all these need to help set the stage for what we're going to kind of talk about. You mean Mein Kampf? 
Mein Kampf, Mein Kampf. Yeah, I think your pronunciation makes it sound like like it's a <laughs> summer camp thing. <laughs> Welcome to the summer camp. <laughs> Welcome to Mein Kampf. <laughs> I'm here to help you with schmores. <laughs> we will do the basket weaving. And then... Then we'll teach you all the fun little kids about nugenics. While we're at it, we'll teach you about the supremacy of the Aryan voices. Oh, God. Yeah, Mein Kampf, was, mein Kampf, was, mein Kampf was for the Hitler youth. <laughs> mein Kampf I, was the book. I feel really uncomfortable. If you've enjoyed Joke. Mein Kampf, if you've enjoyed Mein Kampf, then please send your children to Mein Kampf. <laughs> It's like Minecraft. Send your children to Minecraft. It's so terrible. Oh, we're going to hell. I'm glad that we can, like, at least laugh about, you know, the worst fucking atrocity of all of human existence. I think it's been time. So far. So far. Let's put the tag on there. So far. I think it's it's been time. We can now. We've had had some critical distance. (laughs) We've got critical distance. We We know what they did wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we always say we're going to edit this stuff out and we never will. We never do. We never do. And now we have the power very, to edit this stuff out and we probably still won't. So. <laughs> very, very. We are not. Consistent about that. We are, we are, we are laughing. Let's make this clear. We're laughing more about my pronunciation, less about the atrocity that actually happened. I think we're actually going to like sideways kind of discuss. Anyway. I, I mean, I hope people understand right now that, uh, I'm with camp. Get rid of Nazis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. And, I, w- I wish they were just fodder for comedians. Yeah. And it, I and wish they were an extinct. It, you know, we've got several of them in, in politics now. Oh, God. Yeah. I think this is why I, I feel like so much of this film is really, uh, like, relevant to today. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and one of the themes that I kind of picked up on, um, whether it be, like, kind of a historicist, historicizing, I, that's a, that's an actual word I know. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I... Uh, this this tendency to like rewrite history, right? For for kind of like a a, a revisionist overlook. I I don't mean to be revisionist about this, but I do think that there are some resonances to the story that um, I really want to kind of dig into with regards okay. to some of these Nazi ideas, right? Um, because you eugenics that was the a word that you brought up, mm-hmm. right? Eugenics was. Um, uh, kind of a, a a philosophy that was very popular at the the turn of the century mm-hmm. and occupied a lot of space, mm-hmm. um, like kind of media space, in terms of of science fiction and uh, fantasy literature at the time at the early twentieth century. Well, one of the earliest questions you and I were sat there and asked each other as we were watching this film is why do they change the setting? Why go from right. like Geneva and France and distinctly set this in Germany? And so we started spitballing right. back and forth. And mm-hmm. our first thoughts that we kind of played with and kind of messed with was like, is it social commentary on Nazi Germany? Mm-hmm. And then we started looking at like the historical kind of comparisons and like would they have known about this or this. Right. And, and I think where we, we kind of came down on it, just looking at timelines, looking at the individuals involved, listening to some of these histories is basically that um, it is an unreasonable assumption to believe that these things were fully 100 percent intentional. And that's what this movie is about. Right. However, there is a reading of this film 
that still aligns with a lot of these preoccupations. And that reading is not necessarily entirely off base. Right. So it, it's very we need to be very careful here in saying that there, you know, we are performing some of these cultural readings about this film specifically with regards to things like eugenics and the questions that kind of open up there. Right. Um, however, we are not necessarily saying that this was the filmmaker's message itself. Right. And and so, you know, as we kind of read this stuff, I, I do believe that literature belongs to the reader. Oh, sure. Right. But I think that from my perspective, one of the things that I'm looking at is like, what are the questions, the human questions here, the philosophical questions that this this movie is kind of um, asking? And, and how does that fit into the, the cultural moment, the historical moment? Right. Um, and how can this help us better understand our current historical moment, uh, even 91 years removed from this movie. Right. Um, One of the things that I had heard about or or that I I researched and read about was that this idea of this timelessness, like we agreed they moved it to, say, Germany, but pinpointing exactly when in time, it almost gives it like a fairy tale quality. It does. You're absolutely right. Because there's like laboratory with like this high tech equipment that's all right. electrical and then you there's like no cars there's no TVs no radios yeah, no. and and we kind of have to remember that this is also a, a story that is trying to capture a story that was written a, you know a century prior right um and and like one of the most important pieces of literature i think that has been written right uh, for mm-hmm. our modern age uh mary shelley wrote Frankenstein. Uh, Do you remember which year she wrote it? I both want to say 1813 and 1819. And I feel like I'm right with one of those. I think you're, I think you're close. I think, I think that's, I maybe 1818. We should have written this. Why didn't we write this stuff down? Because it's not our deep dive part yet. (laughs) We're not in the deep dive. We're not in the deep dive. I mean, I mean, suffice it to say though, that like this is, this story was over a hundred years old when it was adapted to film. Right. Right. And and in that hundred years, I mean like Mary Shelley was still asking philosophical questions that I think deserve to be asked. Yeah. And one of the biggest was what is man's role in creation? Yeah, uh, you know, like like what is man's role to to God, to the supernatural, to life, to death? Well, that was one of the most controversial lines at the time that they ended up cutting out until very recently, until a very recent release was when Colin Clive creates the monster, and he does this whole "it's alive, it's alive" thing, and then he said, "How does he put it?" He says, um, "I now know what it feels like to be God or to to be like God Sob- or something something like that." Like that. that was. Very controversial, and, and at the this time. film was very aware, right, oh, yeah. of the the kind of political and religious implications that it would have in public discourse. Yeah. Right, it opens, I think, fantastically with um, one of the actors coming out to introduce the film. Edward Van Sloan, the guy who plays Doctor Var, Var whatever, and he plays uh-huh. Van Helsing he in plays Dracula. The doctor, right? He, yep. the Van Helsing guy. Uh, he comes out to kind of like like preface the movie almost like a, a not a spoiler warning but right. like a like a what do you call those uh sensitivity tag or yeah or or um so what, par- what do they call those I, no i know exactly yeah he comes out to warn people like this is going to be very gruesome and he but but not not just that he he warns them like this we're going to have a talk about some stuff yeah you know that that uh can can be unsettling, right? right. Uh, that that may even venture on blasphemy. 
Yeah. And and that is not the hope, right? The hope is it, we're not saying that man should become God or that, you know, anything, anything like that. We're not acting to usurp religious authority, but we are posing important questions and we hope you come along with the ride. So for me, the, 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 this also has like a media blitz kind of idea like they used for the exorcist and later in which they, they warn people like they show images of people being carted out on ambulance stretchers because they were just too, you know, upset by the film, frailing the historian that, that does the narration for this argued. Mm-hmm. He said there had already been rumors of people walking out and like panicking and fainting at Dracula and watching Dracula. So right. by the time this comes right. out, this is like Universal's like step up to like, ooh, you think right. that bothered you? Now, so much of that. So I much of it is media. It's. And it's bullshit, right? Oh, yeah, and like it's, yeah, it's bullshit. I, I love, um, I was just listening to uh, um, a, a podcast. Uh, it Williams, wasn't ours? No, it, yeah, that's right. Damn. I don't always listen to our own show. <laughs> I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I mean, I do listen to all of the episodes. I just, it's not the only thing I listen to. Um, my ego can only take so much. Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, no, I was listening to William Sterling's podcast Mm -hmm. um killer mediums and and his second episode uh is great he's talking about um final girls and uh he he and his guests were were kind of talking about um the what was the movie that they were talking they they were talking about um this uh uh, the tingler Mm -hmm. right and and the director of the tingler with with vincent price um, which is my favorite movie, by the way, uh, The Tingler. <laughs> but uh, the director would like actually hire these uh, like like medical staff to come and like like walk around during filmings or, or showings of the <laughs> film, um, you know, to, to in case someone got too scared, you know, to, yeah. to like uh, watch the movie. And and he he like he comes out as the director in the beginning of the movie and like coaches people like on how to watch the film and interact <laughs> with the movie, which I think is just br- absolutely brilliant. I think sure. it's so fun as a, as kind of that spectacle yeah. viewing, right? Um, but I think that like he is one example of like how sensationalized these accounts were. Yeah. And I don't necessarily believe that anyone was fainting during Dracula. I don't either. But that was, I mean, you that's know. a great promotional. Right. Kind of, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great and, promotional and it, and it fits in with the mythology of film. Right. In a way. Well, Frayling said that that preview was added after the movie had been released. So the movie's mm. released and then they came back and filmed that preview with Edward Van Sloan and attached oh, it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, which is why I think it's more like promotional, like. like oh, sure. Like skeptical. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, sensationalist hype. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I don't believe that there were people who, you know, the rumor that, uh, or the, 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 the myth that people in the first showing of like a, a, a train coming at them, yeah, uh, like ran away <laughs> from the theater in fear because they thought a train was bearing down on them. I don't believe that's true. I, th- I think yeah. humans are a lot smarter than that. Sometimes. Sometimes every every once, well, occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, the Nazis in our, in our government would probably uh, probably re- not probably yeah. refute that claim. Yeah, yeah. We we keep coming back to the Nazis. So yeah, we're we, it's, we're gonna talk about Nazis. I, I, mean, I do want to mention the, and I know you and I have gone back and forth on this. I do want to mention the circumstantial evidence. I feel like that bears, and again, this is how people want to interpret this. I think, like you just said, is is all up to them. We have that historical kind of lens through which we we critique 
everything. I know that we've read and looked at several sources that said like the Universal's president, Lamely, Carl mm-hmm. Lamely, um, he was German. He was from, he was a Jewish uh, immigrant from Germany. Yeah. Um, he did uh, create Universal Studios. And in the 30s, he did start paying for Jewish families to leave Germany and settle in Western Europe. And I believe um, that. And and I believe that there. You but know, you're right. We don't know what how this played into him and James. I mean, right. James Whale, we know, was a uh, uh, the director was a known homosexual. He was an out homosexual Correct. in 1930s and, Hollywood. So I think the intent, like the actual intended reading of this is probably right. more along something like that. Right. Right. This story, as everyone knows, is uh, this Dr. Franken- Frankenstein. um <clears throat> He, he decides that he's going to take on an experiment to see if he can conquer death. And he builds this monster, this human monster, you know, of, of corpse parts, uh, and then uh, strikes it with electricity and he brings it to life. Uh, right. But it is not a natural life. And the monster does not have the same uh, depth of human intelligence, if you will, um, and kind of goes on this tirade, uh, not a tirade, this rampage, if right. you will, of violence across the countryside, um, which leaves a couple of people dead. Um, and then finally, the the, the group kind of uh, rises up to chase the monster out and, and finally destroy it. Right. Now, I that's the plot. That's, that's not plot. necessarily the emotional beats of the story right nor is it the nuance that i think this director gives to the monster exactly because that when the first we want to say like rampage or tirade and stuff it's easy to look at the film and see this but when you learn like karloff and james whale wanted to portray the monster more innocently exactly he really isn't on a rampage i mean he's tortured by it's not igor but it's whatever the character like Igor is yep He's tortured by uh, him at the beginning. Like, I, I can't remember the, the name of the kid. We, uh, we, we just, just watched, watched this. this. I know. We just we watched have it. written it down. Because <laughs> I brought it up, too. I was like, this isn't, I, I thought it was Igor. And, and I know. we were like, no, it's not Igor. It's no. like Floyd or something. Yeah, it's like it's Igor. Not, it's, it's it is Floyd, Igor but... later in, in the later sequels. He becomes right. like Igor. Right, right, right. You know. that's, that's and then Igor. For much later. <laughs> and, <laughs> but that's when he becomes Frankenstein. I thought it was Frankenstein. But you were wrong, weren't you? Um <laughs> um, do I get have a reception here in the booth? I do not. Okay, well, yeah. screw it. So we can't it's look useless. it up. We, we, if you know the name, the actual name of the help or the assistant, lab assistant, we'll, in, give, we'll give you a uh, we'll give you a sleigh house no prize. Yes, like Marvel used to do with comic books. Cool, sounds good. So you just corre- you correct us, and we just say cool. You you corrected us. Yeah. So email us at editor at sleighhouse.com. Our research was so sloppy for this episode. Our research is always sloppy. <laughs> Even when we like do stuff, it's like I go on these deep dives and some of them are tangential and I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing? And then it goes everywhere and everywhere but the point. And then it's like, oh, I've done so much. And so I come in with all this research and like it's like throwing shit at the side of a barn. It just goes everywhere. You know, it's (laughs) and that's why people keep tuning in. That's why they keep tuning into us to see exactly what we're going to say and who we pissed off today. We. Well, the absolutely, the Nazis. <laughs> Anyone of German descent just just got a whole load of. Welcome that. to Mein Kampf. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <is> so bad. <laughs> but we are. We I think we are right. Like um, 
Damn, what were we even talking about? I think. No, I, so the the sympathy of yeah, of the, the sympathy of the, the monster. Yeah, I think the portrayal of the monster. Yeah, Karloff has gone on record as saying, "I wanted him to be sympathetic." Whale wanted oh, him yeah, to be of sympathetic, course. of course. So then and, we have, and he is right. He you, is. You, you talked about him being tortured by the Igor character, the the you know the the pal of Frankenstein, who you know just is there to, yeah, I, I mean, fetch uh, the wrong brains and stuff, right? right? Well, he, but, but so he, Frayling does point that out too. He points it out. He says um, the a whole idea of a good brain versus bad brain that's completely eugenics. That's straight out oh, of eugenics. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and and just a, a a complete misunderstanding of you know how like how brains work. <laughs> that that scientific explanation that we're given by that character is basically like lesions on the brain, right? Yeah. Like create these. Uh, these uh, degeneracies, right? It's it it has everything to do with um, biology, right? yeah. and not necessarily anything else. There's no other circumstance for, as for why somebody's bad, which I think is an interesting question in and of itself, right? Yeah. In on the one hand, I will say that there is some of this, um, like that's a little bit utopian in in its longing, mm-hmm. in the sense that like human beings are all just innately good right right and if there's a bad person it must be something physiologically wrong with them i think that okay that would be interesting where's where's the medicine right where's <laughs> the where's the corrective medicine that could just make people better and, well, but, and 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 improve their moral stature where's the where where's the brain surgery we we, we could do on marjorie taylor green and like you know make her a better <laughs> fucking person right um, but no, I think is to your there point, a brain in it, here? it is really deterministic, and, yeah. and I think that it does lend itself to the the kind of popular eugenics that that circulated a lot in the science fiction, especially pulp science fiction of this this era. Right? Well, even by 1931, 19, let's say even 1930, we'll say 1930, 31, when this film was being produced right. and made and mm-hmm. stuff, right? But because it was released, I believe, later in the year, like October. Yeah, yep, that's right. Um the you have i mean we have to understand that eugenics at this point had been around and was popular in both california germany mm-hmm. other places oh yeah and it had been around for a long time the well, science and, and of psychology had only been around for less than 50 years at this point and I, I can't i can't stress enough right that eugenics absolutely absolutely was a popular focus oh yeah for a lot of science fiction um, and again, especially pulp science fiction, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one of the most popular pulp sci-fi novels of the early 20th century was a book uh, called Gladiator by Philip Wiley. Um, it's the progenitor of a lot of um, stories that, that crop up through the 30s, uh, like Superman. Superman was mm-hmm. absolutely influenced by Philip Wiley. Um, and in that book... Uh, the the main character uh, is just he's like a, he's a, a almost like a test tube baby. He's he's yeah. not a test tube baby, but um, he's the son of this uh, scientist who is trying to create the perfect man, right. you know, through through eugenics, basically. Um, and so this perfect man comes out. He's stronger than everybody else. He can do something that nobody else can. Uh, and he veers, you know, straight into some frankly frightening philosophical territory yeah and at the end of the book um he definitely decides that he is going to be the person who determines uh what races right 
um, kind of like inherit this new world that he's going to build. And uh, I believe he's struck down by God. Like I think God strikes him with a bolt of lightning and he dies and that's the end of the book. I mean, that makes sense. That, that yeah. does. But that's one of the most popular right. stories uh, at the time. Just a couple of years later um, in, in Pulp Magazines, we'd get Doc, Sam- or, uh, Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, who's this same same character, right? You know, same <laughs> same backstory. He's like this perfect perfect human being who has been raised by a scientist to be like the perfect human. Uh, and he goes around and he you know like saves people with his miraculous <laughs> ability to smell things, you know, you know stuff <laughs> like that. Um, this was immensely popular. So I don't think that. When we look at Frankenstein and and say, like, there's some eugenics in here mm-hmm. um, and some of the conversation around, you know, this like creation of a human body, like, can we create the, the perfect form? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that it's off the mark to say this is a conversation about eugenics because that was a very popular philosophy circling right. around at that point in time. I I just keep, and I agree with you 100%. I think I think that this is definitely ingrained in the film itself. I right. keep coming back to the monsters, like quote unquote rampage. Yeah, Fritz was that the name well, of the? Yes, Fritz. Fritz. That's it. Fritz. I knew it started with an F. You know, Fritz uh, tortures the monster until till he kills him, and then the next thing I think people who are familiar with this film would come up with and say, "Well, he kills the little girl." But, and, and, but he doesn't. A, it's a misunderstanding. He doesn't. Right? He doesn't intend to. Right. Exactly. She asks him, "Do other things float?" He, he doesn't. And know he's any playing better. with her. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He doesn't know any better, so he accidentally kills this girl. Right. I I think you're right. I think that the character of of the monster is is you know deeply sympathetic and sympathetically tra- portrayed. And right. I think this is one of the ways in which the movie kind of counteracts its own conversation. Um, yeah. Or at least the scientist's conversation, you know, this character's conversation about what makes for something good and what makes for something bad. We learn that this quote unquote criminal brain with its like crazy lesions or whatever uh, may not actually be criminal. Yeah. In the malicious sense. But rather it doesn't have the capacity. Right. Uh, or, or rather the same rational faculties that um, a brain without these like deep lesions, right, these problems um, might have. And and so this character is just simply living the best life it knows how to live based on the limited experience that it's had. Yeah. And as a result, makes some decisions or does some things that in the, the wrong context look like it's out of violence right. when it is not. And I think that this malignment of the monster makes it very, very sympathetic. Oh, yeah. I agree. I agree 100%. And I do think that that was intentional. I do, too. And again, knowing the subtext, right, I think there is a conversation about uh, the malignment of of any marginalized person, right? Right. Not just um, uh, homosexuals right. in this case, but, but certainly homosexuals. Homosexuals, yes, because like we said, James Whale, that's how right. – that's how Boris Karloff was discovered for the film as James Wells' partner um, had seen him in a, right. a theater the the year before, seen him in a theater production, said he'll be perfect. Um, and this is an interesting factoid, right? Because right. the original casting to play the monster 
was Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. And we talked about that. You, you missed that on the Dracula episode, but we talked about how Lugosi really wanted to play Dracula because he had been playing him. Right. And they're like, well, here's Frankenstein. He's like, I don't want to fucking do that. I want to do yeah. Dracula. And he wa- he needed more of like a prestige role, I right. think. Uh, and, and I mean, maybe rather unfortunately for Bill Lugosi, I think he just got typecast as Dracula for forever. Cause yeah. Well, he plays after, so now this, this movie, it's Fritz in like the later movies, it's, it's, uh, Igor, Igor, whatever. Right. And that is Lugosi playing at least in a couple of iterations of it, Igor or Igor. Oh, maybe he does play Igor in later iterations. Yeah. No, in, in this one, though. In this Fritz, one. Fritz play, uh, is played by the Renfield character from Dracula. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was a, I forget his name, but he was a character actor. I was yeah. really into because he's in a bunch of 1930s horror movies and he always plays kind of a similar manic sort of uh, creepy dude. Now, correct he's me if I'm great. wrong and, and feel, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm under the impression that at least back then actors were assigned to studios. And, yes. And then that's right. So that's why we you see a, a lot of the same com- yeah, a studio actors. Con- and and it, it's that way today, too. You yeah. know, you have kind of a studio contractor. If if you're used by a certain casting agency for a studio, you'll you'll show up in a whole lot of other stuff. Right. Uh, Kate and I just rewatched the entire Final Destination <laughs> franchise because uh, because we're just like that sometimes. Um, the Rube. Is it Rube Goldberg? Yeah, the Rube Goldberg, Goldberg of, of death. death. <laughs> yeah, is it the the ones that are the most Rube Goldberg like are my favorite ones. Oh yeah, uh, the ones that are not like that, where this guy gets his intestines sucked out of his butthole <laughs> in a in a fucking pool. That's the worst one. But uh, you you see a lot of the same actors you know, in that movie show up in like other WB, like little mini franchises, <laughs> like, so, like half the actors are sourced out of like, like Smallville, <laughs> you know, or like, like one tree hill, you know, or something like that. It's, it's like, they take these actors from these CW shows, these WB shows, and they just kind of like recast them in these, mo- these like teen horror movies. Right. Very, very common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, yeah, you see a lot of that. And, and in this moment in time, a lot of this, the, the reason you see so many familiar faces is because yeah, they, they have a contract through a studio and they just make whatever the studio kind of pitches at them. <laughs> yeah. I am really excited once we get into the deep dive to come back to this movie and like look at the themes of the movie and look at the, the way they produce the movie and compare it to the novel at some point. And the, yeah. So uh, from the novel, from what I remember of the novel, right? The mm-hmm. big question is just like, what is, what, what is man's role in, in creation? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the subtitle is the modern Prometheus. Right. And and for those of you who don't know who Prometheus was. Get an education. (laughs) We're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. Look it up. (laughs) Google Scholar, not Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but Prometheus was one of the one of the gods. Mm -hmm. um, And he uh, kind of had a profound disagreement with uh, with Zeus about the, you know, the role of the gods to to man. Um, And so Prometheus brought fire to men. That mm-hmm. was the the big deal because fire was like this hidden technology, <laughs> right? Um, because with fire, you can do so much more. Uh, and fire is, is kind of symbolic, not just with life, but with industry, especially. Um, and so he kind of brings this new industry to man and revolutionizes their whole life. And as a result, Zeus got really pissed with Prometheus for, for breaking that vow and, and <laughs> chains him to a rock so he can have his... his uh, gizzards eaten by <laughs> buzzards for the rest of his life 
I love how like the writers of like religion and history have always gone to this ironic hill kind of kind of thing. Like the guy who's thirsty is to keep pushing the rock up the hill and like almost to get to the glass of water and he can't quite. Re- I don't know. I'm mixing up myths there, yeah, but I don't care. But you're you're mixing up two <laughs> completely different characters here. Yeah, that no, the, the one of them is like Sisyphus, which yeah, yeah. is the rock guy. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think then so. there's Tantalus, who is the thirsty guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's he's thirsty and he's hungry, and and uh, there's like like vines overhead of food, but they're just out of they're reach. just out of reach. Yeah, yeah. And and the water <laughs> down by his ankles is is always anytime he stoops, the water recedes. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's just Tantalus and Sisyphus. Sisyphus yeah. is the rock guy. He has yeah. to push it up to the hill that's but there's right. no place you know there's no place to rest it so he pushes it up and it just falls back down yeah that's right yeah and then rolls over indiana jones yes I, that's <laughs> right that's actually can- that's canon that's real yeah that's the rock from indiana jones it just rolls right over um <laughs> that rock splits in half and gives birth to dwayne johnson i just love the idea of like like i think somebody ought to spoof like greek myths and like for prometheus just be like some time traveler who like shows up with a bick and he's like in front of cavemen and like, like ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> he's like lighting fire. Here you go, buddy. <laughs> we, I just gave you a bit. <laughs> that shows that shows up as the origin of Bic. It, it's in it's in a secret archaeological dig. It's like this Bic. <laughs> it's two million years old. What? <laughs> <laughs> Best bit of branding. <laughs> not you since, know what? Not since I Sonic the Hedgehog has been such a great piece of. <laughs> I believe there is like this, this like this weird, bizarre capitalist future, right? Where they're like, we need, we need more branding. Let's let's in- introduce fire to cavemen. Well, we've got this time travel now. We really need to secure our future profits. Oh my God! All right, um, is that all we can say on Frankenstein, or is no, there more I that you? No, I think there's way more. We just keep going off t- on tangents. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that coming back to the novels, the, the novel's premise, right? It right. asks these questions of like, what is man's role in in nature? What is man's role in creation? Right? To what extent have we become masters of our own destiny? And I think the ultimate question of that is, is like, is there a way for us to circumvent death? Which is what I think Frankenstein goes to do in both the novel and the film, right? Right. And that's one thing I want to look at when we come back to the novel at some point is how does the film re-ask that question and also provide an answer to that possible question? Right. And I think that, at least for me, in rereading this this film uh, with with my mind set to today's events, right, right, I think that... um, I I keep coming back to this this issue of eugenics, which Mm -hmm. I think is so prominent in my reading of this film, right? Because the question is really not just, you know, how can we circumvent the cycle of life and death, which would give us total power over our fates, but also in so doing, he constructs what he believes will be this like superior being, right? right? This superior human who... who, uh, who for you know whom death has no claim on right. or over um and i think that that i i lean into this this you know problem this problem of like well what who who designs the ideal human right and the fallibility i think of these ideas of of like 
that humankind can create its own perfect version of itself. Right. Because that is always going to be focused on what that individual person, you know, believes to be perfection or believes to be the most valuable kind of life. Right. Right. And moving away from like, say, just for a second, we can come back to it definitely. But moving away from this idea of just political ideology of eugenics. When you get into oh, I, like, I think there's racial subtext. There's there racial subtext, but I'm also talking about like the scientific, like the actual genetic idea that you can. Uh, they're they're playing with ideas like in a few years we'll be able to go in and and you know after they've mapped the oh the the, the sequencing of the human sequencing genome the human genome and create that like we your can go in and babies right yeah. you can go in and say I don't my baby has a chance to have like syphilis I want or not syphilis but um. Uh, hold, hold on! <laughs> That's Whoa. more of a behavior thing. What? That's more of a behavior issue, which you could still correct in genetics. Maybe. <laughs> I want to open this door and just scream at the people passing by. What? <laughs> we don't My wanna... baby has syphilis. <laughs> How? I meant to say, because it sounds the same. Sickle cell anemia. <laughs> okay, sure, right, all right. But you could look and say, okay, there's a propensity or, or for the child any, to be any born. Genetic any genetic defect, right? Right. Like, like, or and we can go problem. in and correct this. And is right. this, I mean, that's what Frankenstein is offering us as a conversation. Is that something we can go in and, and should be doing? I mean, is it? And, and that's, I think that, that question is still relevant oh, even yeah. today, you know, as, as we continue to, to think about. Not <laughs> with syphilis. That's a totally different <laughs> Just take some penicillin, you'll be fine. My new but. band name is Babies with Syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, we go off the rails all the time. Uh, all the um, time. This is what happens. But, yeah, I was going for sickle cell anemia, and then instead of that, my brain's like, oh, that's too hard You're to say. Just stuck just, on Sisyphus. <laughs> yeah. Sisyphus had syphilis, right? Sisyphus had syphilis, that's and so did Bram Stoker. And... <laughs> <laughs> just free association. <laughs> so, so yeah, sickle cell anemia I, no, is way I too think, hard to I say. I think to your point, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. there is this question of like, you know. Where does it stop it, but, but, Right, exactly. And, and, and there are so many lim- limitations. Again, I come back to like, you know, who, who is it that's creating these, these individuals? Who, who is it that's creating these peoples? Yeah. Because it's always, you know, any, any idea of your, your perfection, right? Or your idea of perfection is going to be dictated by who you think you are. Right. And, and and so, you know, there's a tendency, I think, with a lot of these ideologies, these, you know, philosophical ideologies to only ever respect or have room for your kind of, of people. Right. Or right. your whatever you think your in-group is. This is the problem of Nazism. Right. right. Was that the, the ideal Nazi. Right. The the Aryan race, if you will was only ever going to be like white people, right? Blonde hair, blue-eyed, basically. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white <laughs> Tall, people. Tall, you know, yeah. But but in yeah. general, I think it's just it, it's just white people, right? Yeah. And a lot of the messaging there was always predicated on this idea that white people are superior to any other kind of people. Yeah. And specifically that the this particular group of people, right, was going to be superior to even other white people. Right. right. It, 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 there's there's just this creation, this this division. Right. Um, that's de- devised to make the people who look like you feel a little bit more comfortable right. because that brings you power. Right. But I think that, 
you know, there's there's limitations to this ideology all over the place. Right. You know, the the monster, uh, if you will, you know, Boris Karloff or whatever. Okay, he looks one way, but he's you know he's not black. Right. You know, he's not uh, Asian. Right. And I think there's also a tendency too for for you know creating these kinds of of people who are you know it's it's like an ableist vision, right? Right. The, the very idea that we could step in and and craft the genome so that your child doesn't have blindness or doesn't have deafness right. seems to suggest that being blind or being deaf uh, is somehow inferior to someone who can see and someone who can hear. Right. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case, right? There, there are plenty of people out there in the world who were born with these, um, th- these, you know, issues. If you want to even call them issues, right? Um, they were born into these, you know, different circumstances, but who have embraced their identities through them, have come to peace through them, right? Um, and I, I, I think that when we look at things from these ableist uh perspectives or or these white perspectives or these right. you know exclusionary perspectives there's a danger that we're always going to be finding a new means of ostracizing the other right and i think that this film at least you know maybe isn't as interested in having that deep a conversation but gives us the experience of that quote unquote other right? right shows us the mob that's ready to destroy this monster Right. In spite of not knowing a single thing about this monster's existence. I mean, the very call like act of calling it the monster. Right. I, I think is telling. Right. And dehumanizing it even in the credits, because when it exactly. lists the monster in the credits, it's just question mark. Right. Um, and they add Karloff's name in later movies. And right. And then, well, they, they add him in the end of, you know, to the end of the, the movie because the, the first yeah. credits <clears throat> open up. And it, it casts the monster as a big question mark, and then it. Then the end credits do the same nope, thing. No, the end credits actually tell you that it's Boris okay. Karloff. Well, interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. I just think about the far-reaching, and again, we can attribute this to the book. We could attribute this to the the movie, and that's the once we talk about the book and and you know after we've reread it and looked at all of our our research on it. I want to come back and look at what they do and what, how they differ and how they, you know, sure. where they're, they're the oh, same. Oh, yeah, and why those differences really, really matter. Right, and why they really matter. Yeah. I just think about, you know, I think about, I think about Marina Lostetter. I think about how we just read her book um, and, well, actually listened to the audio book on the way to StokerCon. Uh-huh, Numenon. Numenon. Uh-huh. And it is carrying on a very similar kind of conversation. Oh, sure. Preposition by the book and and this movie. I think activation degradation even does it a little bit more. more. Do they do it? I haven't read that one yet. I mean, she, she, uh, you know, the, the character, the main character of that book is, um, is, is like a clone that's, that's born of this, you know, this, a human clone, if you will. Right. uh, But believes itself to be a robot, you know, and it's just kind of cloned in, perpetuity like it's it's you know doesn't even have a name um really because it's just you know kind of generated and so she gives us the whole the whole story you know from the perspective of the the frankensteinian monster right um after it's been created i mean for me i think numenon what what hit with me and again i haven't read activate activation degradation yet but for what hit with me with numenon was just this idea of we're going to send our best into space. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to clone absolutely. them because that will weed out any possibility of evil. Of Right. 
of, of there being kind and of yet problems. they go through almost every stage of, of human <laughs> civilization evolution as right. as right. they possibly can yeah um including fascism at one point if i remember yes right. yeah, no that's like absolutely that's, correct so yeah I mean, it's just Us, using the same deterministic language, right? right. That the the mission, with good intentions, you know, had kind of been put together. That we but at least now can agree right. that maybe the movie is is perpetuating. I mean, again, I want to get back to the book and see if it's really yeah. using the same exact language. I but we know the movies. I think thematically, at least from what I remember, I think thematically these these two things really do marry up. Yeah. I think what I love about this movie and why I continue to keep watching it. Um, first is because it's short it, for one thing. It, it's short. It's <laughs> it is very short, and that's that's uh, that's. You could blissful. watch it while your while your laundry's drying. You could watch it while we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, Ooh, make us the commentary while you're watching the movie. That we'd be the worst commentary <laughs> for the movie. Something would happen, and we'd just be completely off in la la land. <laughs> talking about mind camp. Talking about mind comp. <laughs> I think. Um, what changes in this movie is kind of like, well, first, it really gives us the the visual of the monster, the Frankenstein monster. Oh, yeah. And I think um, because of the popularity of the movie Frankenstein, with all of its images focusing very specifically on Boris Karloff's <laughs> performance, I mean, it gives us Boris Karloff. Yeah. Um, and, and there is not a monster movie on Earth that doesn't owe something to the physicality of, of Karloff's monster. monster, exactly. Kind of like with uh, with 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 uh, Dracula. I mean, with, with Dracula, uh, he became the 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 mummy afterwards. The mummy afterwards. Uh, yeah. I mean, Wolfman. I, we we want to talk about that. We're going to talk about them um, and talk about you know what is inter- at least from today's perspective, what's interesting about these movies that yeah. are ninety years old in some cases. Um, but I think you know we get like the physicality of a performance of a monster performance from from Karloff, and we also get the rebranding of the monster as Frankenstein, yeah. right? Because so many people at this point in time don't know to disassociate Frankenstein from the monster; they're one and the same thing. Well, in the book Which I was reading, some interesting readings exactly. of the text itself. Who's the greater monster? Who is Frankenstein the or the monster? Right. And in my opinion, I think it. I think it's. Don't spoil it for him. No, I think it's Frankenstein. You think it's Frankenstein? I think it's Frankenstein, because yeah. he has he has no real he has no real inclination as to what he's doing to bring new life into the world and what he's trying to do to raise that life. Well, what his civic duty is to that individual. Yeah. If you will. I I read an interesting idea that the cultural confusion about is this movie the monster is the monster frankenstein you know uh-huh. when they, we get the name um was due was was kind of accidentally stumbled into with this movie and then perpetuated by bride of frankenstein in which the mad scientist is oh, creating yeah. the, oh i the think wife. it definitely is but that's kind of how marketing works oh right? yeah like yeah. like things <clears throat> just kind of happen and then all of a sudden it it takes on a life of its own now, we aren't talking about Bride of Frankenstein yet, folks, because we feel like with all of the sequels absolutely. that are out there, that deserves its own it's, episode. It's such a good movie. We, and, and, so here's yeah. another thing that, that we haven't quite touched on, but that right. I, I feel a duty to touch on. Um, Frankenstein, as a movie, predates the film code um, of the 1930s that, yeah. that would basically um, inhibit a lot of movie makers 
from being able to bring in the same kinds of shots that we see in Frankenstein. As a pre-code film, it is allowed to be a much, much bolder in its voice and in its vision. It's well, allowed the to have was... these kinds of conversations that we're talking about right. symbolically and in some cases literally as the, the character. Well, of, once the pre-code uh, um, uh, kind of uh, the codes kind of settled in, once they established the, the cinematic codes to dictating what movies could and couldn't right. show, uh-huh. that's when they cut out his statement of. Uh, now I know what it feels like to be a god, and they cut out the the scene of, hit, of the monster right. throwing the girl exactly. in the lake. They were so like, "You can't exactly. show this anymore. You can't show that sort of and thing." And it's only been very recently that they've reinstituted that, those exactly. back into the film. Right. And so, as a pre-code horror movie, I think this movie is able to make some very uh, controversial scenes. Yeah, you know, even if it's not controversial I'm by so today's surprised. standards, right? Um, I'm, I'm surprised so they surprised. Kept they like the, ca- yeah. the guy carrying his the guy daughter. carrying his dead. That to me girl. was like, it, it's one of the best shots in all of cinema history. Oh yeah, the the scene where he's carrying his dead girl through. Um, but that wasn't that kind of like that wasn't Bavarian, cut by the uh, a village, right? Uh, yeah, and that was not removed from from uh, the cut after mm. after the film code. It's funny though. I was again reading and doing my my histor- historical kind of look into mm-hmm. this. They say that the actress that played the little girl, she was like seven at the time. Yeah, she, she was not scared of, she loved of Boris. Carlo. Like he's in makeup and she's like, oh, yeah. look at him. And they're just playing together and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, which I think is absolutely lovely. I think that's I think that's awesome. Um, but I but I think that this movie is bold, is yeah. visually bold in some places. There have been some comparisons and, and to it with German expressionism at the time. Sure. Yep. I, I totally believe that. Yeah. And I think um, even beyond that, you know, the little things like, you know, this this is what might have, it must feel like to be a god. Yeah. I think that these statements deepen a lot of the um, kind of cultural readings that that I've been doing, you know, the kind of cultural readings that make this sort of thing really interesting. And I think that it exists because, you know, pre-code, I think a lot of directors and writers were able to explore these avenues with free reign and free expression. Um, And and what I think is interesting about Bride of Frankenstein, which is a post-code film, so much of the subtext there uh, has to show up symbolically. Yeah. It, it can no longer actually be text. It has to be subtext. And that movie does subtext incredibly well. I cannot and, wait to talk about that. And we'll talk that about film. it in, in the next episode. We do. One thing that, that one of the, the things that I want to, that, that really strikes me, and we're talking about like how effective some of these pre-code kind of scenes were, Whale was also really good at switching tone. So you would get like a really serious kind of dark, dramatic kind oh, of scene. Yeah, very goth. And then you get a scene where it's like the goofy old dad of Frankenstein, <laughs> like, where's my son? What's he doing? You know, he's not out with some woman, you know? It's it's weird. It's the burger master. It's weird how it kind of changes totally, almost into camp. It does. Well, and they say there's some scenes that are very vaudevillian. Oh, absolutely. It totally draws on some of the. So he's playing with like comedy, he's playing with like extreme horror, and so you're kind of. In this roller coaster, more so than Dracula, I think. Dracula oh, yeah. did no, not Dr- do all I think this. Dracula plays it t- a little bit too straight at times. Yeah. I, but I, th- I think too, what what is marvelous about that is that um, it it becomes so culturally relevant. You know, kind of part of our our language, our our language for film, for horror film. Yeah. Um, that 
you know, later creators can kind of draw on that same language that we've just kind of adopted through popularity yeah. um, and create really subversive, uh, you know, film or, or subversive literatures that create some portrayals of the same kinds of characters um, that I think are absolutely riveting to watch. Yeah. You know, I, I, we wouldn't have Fright Night if we didn't have Bella Lugosi's, <laughs> you know, uh, Dracula. We, I we love Fright Night. Fright Night. My God. If people have not, and I'm not talking about the remake with Colin Farrell. I'm right, talking right, right. like the original, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. 80s Fright Night. That, uh, oh, that was, that is I, the one you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's the one I'm talking about. I, I think, too, that, uh, you know, Frankenstein is, is part of this. I, th- physicality is everything yeah. in, in this movie, and, and at least when it comes to the monster and the portrayal of the monster. Boris Karloff really, really gave us so much to, to really just eat up in that performance. Yeah. And as a result, we see that same physicality show up everywhere else. Yeah. You you can't have a night of the living dead without that weird stocky, you know, kind of walk. <laughs> and I think that it comes back to Boris Karloff's performance. And part of his performance though was was in part it was theatrics, but in part of it it was like necessary for like how he cuz like Oh we, yeah, no, like he the boots were like thirty pounds. Like, yeah, exactly. The boots were uh, <laughs> like wore, thirteen like, pounds a piece or something. Yeah, it was like, it was like thirty pounds total yeah. on his feet. <laughs> You know, to make him taller. And and so he just kind of had to lug around. Um, but it, it, I mean, I'm telling you, it just it gives it a kind of performance that you're not going to get anywhere exactly. else. And I think that uh, there's not a monster visual in cinema today that doesn't owe something to Boris Karloff and what he was doing there. And once we talk about the the, the book, we are going to focus heavily on the monster's differences because the monster in the book is Very so, different. so Such different. Such a different character entirely. I remember I had watched the film since I was a little kid, and when I finally read the book, when I got a little bit older, um, I'm like, wait, this can't be the same. Like, the monster's talking? Like, what's going on here? And then yeah. uh, Kenneth Branagh came out with his version in the early 90s, and the monster was played by Robert De Niro, and the monster is talking in that film, and it's right. more akin to the novel. And I'm just like, I I remember reading the book and then saying, you know, is this right? Is this, you know, kind of what's going on? And then seeing that version and then seeing, you know, but even that version still lent itself heavily to the 31's movies, Frankenstein. Yeah. Like the difference in the creation of the monster. I mean, it's, it's, it's still. In some ways. I, I, I think that when we look at adaptations, uh, uh, you know, when it comes from like novel to film, yeah, I think one of the big questions that we're still kind of leaving hanging out there is like, what makes for a successful adaptation? Yeah. And, and we've asked that of several different writers, several different creators at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they each have a different take on like what makes for a good adaptation over another. For me, I keep coming back to theme. I keep yeah. coming back to like, what's the thematic question and are the thematic questions, you know, like intertwined? Um, this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, some films um, just get it right when it comes to, to adaptation. I think Frankenstein, for my money, is a fabulous uh, adaptation. Yep. And, and I, I'd put it up there with, you know, even more recent adaptations of other uh, franchise work. You know, like yeah. the um, the Southern Reach trilogy, uh, which right. was, uh, uh, what was that book? Um, I know the movie was Annihilation, right? Annihilation, that's the book I'm talking okay. about. Okay. Yeah, so Annihilation, was, was book, uh, book and, and film. Totally, totally different. Totally different in terms of plot, 
uh, Annihilation the book is nothing like Annihilation the film. And yet there is that thematic unity uh, so that I think that um, maybe they're they're different and the implications that they have for that theme, that thematic question, um, you know, kind of go to different spaces. But I think that there is a thematic unity there. And I think yeah. it's the same for, for this Frankenstein. I think it's the same for Dracula, Yeah. you know, in spite of the differences. And I will say Dracula is much closer to the book Dracula than a Frankenstein yeah. film is to the Frankenstein book. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like that doesn't matter. I feel like uh, these are both very successful adaptations. Um, sure. And I think audiences agreed. You yeah. know, like th- these books were, or well, the, they had to because massively popular. Exactly. I mean, they massively. made bank at a time when people were like losing their houses, they were losing yes, their businesses, exactly. they were having trouble feeding their families, exactly. and yet they still found time to go to the right, theater right. and pay for these and, movies. And, and this is some of the wonder I think of the legacy of media, right? The fact that um, th- this stuff came out in a really rough time. And yet still was phenomenally successful. Yeah. So successful that we're still talking about them 91 years later. Yeah. 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 And they still have cultural impact in 91. It's not just us talking about them like so there's some antiquarian kind of I, I mean, people thing pushed up on the so, shelf. They are. Yeah, they, they still influence. So excited. Even for us talking about this, this film. Yeah. They've been excited about it. Um, and I think that's because these these films do really hold resonance yeah. in a lot of people's hearts. Well, and this goes back to our whole thesis. This is why we we have structured Slayhouse the way we have. It's why we've 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 focused the conversations within the podcast the way we have. And that's because we are trying to show legitimacy within genre and how it's worth having this discussion about the things that genre storytelling can give us via movies, via books, via whatever. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, that in the halls of, if I can be that whatever for a second, in the halls of academia, they don't want us to have this conversation. And, or at oh, least, you know. Yeah. And there is. No, I, I, well, I don't think it, it's that they don't want us to have the, the conversation. We can get into it. Let me tell you. We can yeah. get into academia here for a second. I think um, but there what you're a... thinking about, you're thinking specifically about the MFA and, yeah. and the way that literature is taught in an MFA program, you know, a writing program. And the way literature is taught in that program is that um, – Genre has no value. Right. Genre is schlock. Genre is commercial. Genre lacks the literary value that, um, exactly. quote unquote, you know, like Serious general literature. fiction would have. Yeah. Um, and we both know that to be wrong. Absolutely. And, and I think that Absolutely. to to the the academy's credit, um, academia has shifted away a little bit from that. Not necessarily in the MFA program. The right. MFA is still as stuffy as ever. Um, but at least in my field, which was uh, comparative literature and cultural studies, right. you're finding more and more that uh, <laughs> I think literary studies are dead. Um, <laughs> I mean, at, what at else least, can you say about Shakespeare no, at this point? Exactly. What else can you at say least, about Mark Twain? What else can you say about Tolstoy? from the perspective of literary criticism, <laughs> right. I think that they've run out of room. Yeah. And, and part of that is because they've been so vigilant about protecting the canon for so long that they've restricted human expression and the study of human expression 
only to what they deem to be worthy of the canon. And there's a lot of revision going on now by a new generation of scholars who are pointing out there's a lot more to human expression in the 20th and 21st centuries than just this fucking small, tiny angle that you've taken. With and just Hemingway and Faulkner and a few others. It's exactly. <laughs> and and even yeah. now we're seeing a lot more of a resurgence in older, like, like reinterpreting older literatures for their fantasy and fantastic elements. I will say that in the halls of craft education, in the MFA program, um, the conversation is slowly changing, but I just want to speed it up a little bit because we do have sure. Brian McCauley, like we just interviewed. He's teaching at the yeah. graduate level. I'm teaching at the graduate level. Sure. Um, Gabino Iglesias and uh, Stephen Graham Jones both teach right. at the university level. So, Amakatsu so does. Amakatsu teaches at the... She just she borrowed just some notes yeah. for me to, <laughs> yeah, to go and taught a class. Taught a class. So, yeah. so, yeah, there are those of us in this kind of um, genre focus that are getting our word out there and right. we're teaching people. Sure. But the goal is still to teach them with that idea for, for craft and for um, some of the things that, that the more serious minded people I'm air quoting here um, to right. show my irreverence to the, the belief um, that the, the, the things that we are looking for in a, a in an academic craft program about writing um, I don't mean an academic writing, you know, I mean like academic program about creative writing. Right. Um, we can still look for in good genre writing, and that's what I want to see. That's what yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what we're looking for in Tales of Slayhouse. Well, I, I we want to see it, that balance. Just, you know, eventually, I think the the end goal for me, anyway, of of any literary exercise is just to experience it all as literature and not yep. necessarily as genre. Um, but you know, genre is commercial, and uh, that's that's a talk for another day. Yeah. I'd love to go on that rant with you because I I have so many yeah. contentious uh, opinions, and I think I think we align yeah. a lot with that. I think so. Um, but uh, you know, for today, I think um, one of the things that stands out for me, anyway, is Frankenstein is popular. It is, and it's also serious literature. Exactly, and I think that we can have both. Yep, we absolutely can. Yeah. Um, Man, this is going to be coming out late after our last our last episode, so I just want to thank folks and apologize. We have been yeah. very busy getting ready for school to come back. This is this is kind of the the perfect storm of of things where yeah. um, we've we've just had to be shuffling around behind the scenes, figuring out how we're going to make all of this work with some recent life changes, yeah, um, and and with some recent you know kind of commercial changes, and uh, and so we are building back up yeah. this is the first time i've been in the studio for, for what feels like um like months yeah um and i know that i've been there you know for like brian mccauley but i've missed so many different episodes in between and and we've kind of burned through our backstock of stuff so we're we're getting back we are yeah. heading back plus um, we're getting through the anthology right now yes we're, that I, is I don't i think by the time this episode airs we're still going to be working through the anthology stories. i i'm not even gonna lie we, we're, we're we're only barely halfway through selection yeah right of um of the anthology stories because there were so many of them that came in. And that's great. At, we, and also at a, at a crazy time in our lives. Yeah. You know, I didn't expect all of this stuff to crop up that has cropped up. Yeah. But it's exciting and it's great. And and to your point, Jeremy, I know you were going on this, this like <laughs> gratitude trip. I, wa I want to join you there. Yeah. Um, because 
uh, like the only reason I I keep showing up to this sweaty booth, uh, <laughs> I mean, other than to spend time with my best friend, yeah, yeah. Um, is because we we love all of you who give us your support, and yeah. um, we are exceedingly grateful to your support. Um, and speaking of support, if you want to help us out, follow the show, share it with your friends, follow us on social media, retweet we our episodes. We are all over social media. We really are all over social media. Um, f- look at some of our projects, you yeah. know, um, check out Tales of Slay House 2021. Check out uh, Tales of Slay House 2022 when it comes out in October. Yep. We're still aiming for that. We're still on We're track. We're still, I think we, I think we can hit it. No, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do a cover reveal of that pretty soon, though, too. Yeah, and the cover's lit. Oh, the yeah. The cover's fire. Yeah. Um, the, the cover it has actually been done by N.W. Reader. Yep. Um, you need to follow her on, yes. on all of her social media. Um, she's fantastic. <laughs> she's such a cool artist, and yep. she's been such a delight to work with. Yep. Um, you're really missing out if you're not checking out her artwork. And if you're the kind of creator who's like, uh, maybe I want to make some stuff on my own, maybe I want to cover artist go to her yeah. nw reader she's yeah. fantastic um bad form by joe taylor's coming out this bad fall forms coming out very soon i i keep catching all of the <laughs> all of the behind the scenes conversations between you and joe taylor and it's it's just really exciting to see it come together yeah um uh we've got more titles coming out next year milpomene's garden has just come out by curtis harrell um, oh man, that's a great. It's such a great little collection. Yeah. Uh, it's got a lot of stuff in there. And if you're into folk horror, if you're into Southern Gothic, pick it up. It, pick, pick it up. If it's you're into good. poetry and short drama. If you're if you're into <laughs> good li- just good literature. Just good literature, pick it up. Um Same goes for ground control. I mean Ground Control for Ground us has control been out for a while. Phenomenal. It has been out for a while, but I'd also like to see people reading that book because you need it to be reading it. Really beautiful. It is tender and it's just great speculative fiction. What I love about the stories that we are picking for these anthologies, for the titles that are coming out, oh, yeah. they are so these are exactly what I envisioned when we yeah. got Slayhouse going. I don't want to kind of like tip our hat uh, a little, you know, too early or tip our hand, I guess, maybe. Right. T- t- tip our hat. Yes, definitely. But tip our hand too early about some of the stuff that we've uh, contracted for. That's Tales what I've been doing wrong in poker. You've been tipping your hat instead of tipping your hand? I tip my hand. Oh, well, um, that's bad form. That Yeah, exactly. Which you can buy. buy yeah, which you can go ahead and pre-order. <laughs> or you could support us on Patreon if you like. We didn't even script that. That was great. We didn't. That was um, great. No, but but I think that um, some of the stuff that we've contracted for. To be for fair, Trevor, playoffs, I think people know, list, regular listeners know we don't script we half don't the script shit. We don't script fucking anything anymore. <laughs> I've got a four-page, like, single-space script he here. He actually does have a script, and we just ignored all yeah. of it. We've included bits and pieces from it. But. Yeah. Uh, but what I was going <laughs> to say is what I'm so excited about, um, the stories that are coming out for Tales of Slayhouse 2022, is that they really are um, some fresh faces yeah. and some really exciting stuff. Curtis Harrell, um, I don't mind saying I, I just I just got one of those yeah. um, from him. His, his story is... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's so good. Um, but I've I've also been really enjoying um, just just the, the selection process. Um, I found some amazing queer stories that I just <laughs> there's there's one story um, that has like a queer Spock analog, and that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> but I absolutely fucking love it. I I just I I love these stories that we're getting. 
And I really and you'll have U Train on there. Yeah, and we are working on T M Morgan's we, Telethon. Yeah, we're working through Telethon. I've got to go re-record some lines for it. Um, but that's going to be a great experience. Yeah. And uh, I'm just, I really, I'm just so thankful for all of you who have followed along, all of you who are who are invested, and I hope that you keep coming back for more, uh, because that makes everything worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. We love you guys. Um, We'll be back in hopefully like not very long. I don't want to give you a time frame. Uh, hopefully, we won't be too long before we come back to you with Bride of Frankenstein. We're going to also aim. We're, the we're aiming Invisible for Bride, Man, Bride of, of Wolfman, yeah, Bride of Frankenstein. We're, uh, we are going to round out Creature of the Black Lagoon. Yeah, we are going to round round out that the summer of Universal Horror took kind of a detour. Yeah, it's um, going into the fall of Universal Horror. We, we are, we are gonna the autumn. Continue. Maybe I'll say the autumn of you. Yeah, we're we're gonna continue. <laughs> just just the just you, the more fall Universal of Universal Horror. Horror sounds dire. Like <laughs> it does. It's, it, yeah, accidentally. Uh, but we also have some new uh, author interviews that we're trying to we line have new up. Author, yep, we're very excited about those. Um, we've got the the audio. Um, journey coming uh, telethon that's uh, that's going to come pretty and soon. some other audio programs that I think yeah. are going to be phenomenal um, and we also have a, a back to school special that we're kind of yes. working on just to kind of talk about some elements of craft that maybe you need to know either and make as a, y'all sound smart when yeah, you talk about this stuff. either as a writer or a reviewer or just a reader yep exactly yeah. alright everybody um, thank you very much for joining us with this talk today and we uh, will see you next time Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. 